Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Josh Ware from the Fredericksburg Church of Christ. And if you have a good memory, remember I'm the one that spoke last year. This year has been crazy, and so like anything else, for all three churches, things have been crazy too. So circumstances see me here again. And this is Heath's first time. Three years ago, or three of these Sundays ago, was my first time. So this Labor Day service is kind of a special one for me as well, and I'm thankful for people like Keith or Heath who can who can sing. Uh, my wife once said to me that you know Josh, you're you're blessed at speaking, but singing not so much. So I'm thankful for her honesty to me as well. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So hopefully you have your Bibles and you'll be able to open up or open up your cell phone. Yes, I'm giving you permission to look at that. So I hopefully hear those pages wrinkling or the faces lighting up. But more specifically, we're going to be in verse 11. Uh, Chapter 15 is kind of an interesting chapter because there's three stories that go into one bigger story. And this morning we're going to talk about parables. It seems like parables are people's least favorite stories in the Bible next to the story of Revelation. So it seems like Revelation and then parables and then trying to read through Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, but you get my point here. Parables are interesting in the fact that parables aren't written for you until they're written for you. Let me say that again. Parables aren't written for you until they're written for you. Jesus had a way of speaking to people that people understood it if they needed to understand it. And so actually this morning we're going to talk about one of the most recognizable parables. We're going to be talking about the lost son, or the prodigal son, as some, some translation put it. But mine put the parable of the lost son. And I like this a little better because when we think of the prodigal son, we think of the one son. But this morning, we're going to be talking about both sons. And the thing recently, in the last couple of weeks, that has really been on my heart, and I hadn't understood why it's been on my heart, is unity. Especially church Unity. If we look back to the original term of the Catholic Church, it meant universal church. Now, at Fredericksburg, or the Church of Christ, we've been studying church history. Church history. Now, that doesn't mean the history since 1892 that Fredericksburg Church of Christ was first started. That means the church from the time of Jesus all the way until today. And so we've been looking at that, and I've been looking at this unity that it all started with Jesus, and then all of a sudden we have three different churches here in Fredericksburg. If you look back at the, the heyday of Fredericksburg, if you will, if you look back at the highest population amount, there were actually seven different churches in Fredericksburg at one point. Seven different churches in Fredericksburg at one point. How do we go from Jesus and 12 disciples to seven different churches? It's because of differing ideas. It's because of splintering relationships. It goes against what Jesus preached about. Jesus preached on unity. John prayed about it this morning. Heath prayed on it this morning. Unity. This is the church. This is the church here. So with that said, let me give you some context in what we're talking about. When we go through parables, usually we read parables of face value, about what Jesus says. But when we talk about parables, we should actually look at it in three different levels. We should look at parables and how they relate to the context of who Jesus was talking to. The context of the characters in the story and how they interact with each other. But then also the context of how it relates to us today. 
Because honestly, that's where the Bible is the most powerful, is seeing this document that was written over 6,000 years still relates to us today. We still follow a man who died 2,000 years ago, and yet it still relates to us today. And so with that said, I'll kind of read through this a little bit, and we'll stop at certain points and just kind of break it down. And so we have to remember that first level. We're going to talk about how this context related to who Jesus was talking to. So who was Jesus talking to? We see this at the beginning of chapter 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners. When I first was studying this, I thought it was kind of funny that tax collectors had their separate group from other notorious sinners. We're talking about the idolaters, the murderers, the, the robbers, the thieves, the, the sexual impure, and then tax collectors. So that's a little bit, of, little bit of context into how tax collectors were seen at this time. Often came to t- listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Now, Jewish context speaking, the Jews and their food were very particular in how they took place. Actually, when I first met Krista, we worked at the Canton Jewish Community Center. Now, it's not to say that we're we're Jewish or anything. That's just where we worked at a summer camp. And we weren't even allowed into one of the kitchens. It was called the kosher kitchen. If we even stepped foot into that kitchen, they'd have to have a rabbi come back in and re-bless everything. So that shows you a little bit about how particular the Jewish culture was with their food and even eating their food. Pizza in Jewish culture is completely unheard of. You can't mix meat and cheese and sauce. And so it's just completely outside the realm of even eating. Although I did find out that kosher hot dogs are in doubt the best hot dogs ever made. But that's beside the point. And so this is who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the religious leaders, but he's also talking to the people outside of that Jewish context or outside of basically familiar circles. And so this first parable that Jesus tells in the beginning of chapter 15 is actually where we get the lost sheep, the one sheep that wanders away from the 99, and yet the shepherd goes to save that one. The next parable is about a lost coin and how this woman has 10 coins, but she loses one, and she basically upends her whole house, finds one coin, and then celebrates with all of her friends because of one coin. Now, this may sound really confusing to us, and, well, it would have sounded kind of confusing to the people listening as well. But then when we get to verse 11, Jesus ties this all back in together. And so we'll start here. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger sons told his father, I want a share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, we work hard for what we have, right? I know Fredericksburg being kind of a blue-collar, work-hard, farm town can relate to that. We work hard for what we have. We're proud of what we have. And we we should be because we've worked hard for that. God has blessed us because of our work. And here comes this son, the younger son, says, I want what I'm owed when you die. Basically, what the son is saying to the dad is, I wish you were dead so I could have what is coming to me. The son no longer wanted to be a part of his family. Now, we struggle with with taking our three girls to the store and saying, no, you can't have that. Or, no, we don't have enough money to buy that. And here comes this son saying, I want everything that is owed to me when you die. So can you imagine that? I mean, we celebrate this Labor Day as a relaxation weekend for working so hard. 
And here comes this son. Now, how many of you have a third of what you own just at a moment's notice? Think about everything you own, add all of that value up, and then give a third of it away. Could you do that today? That's what this father is doing. The one son would get two-thirds of the land. The other son would get one-third of the land. And yet, the father doesn't say no. The father doesn't say, you're spoiled, go to your room. The father simply says, or says here, so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. The father, at a moment's notice, sold off one-third of his land, one-third of his property, and just gave it over to his son. Verse 13, a few days later, the son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About that time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked so good to him. But no one gave him anything. Now remember, we're talking about a Jewish rabbi talking in front of Jewish Pharisees and Jewish scribes and Jewish teachers, and he's talking about this boy going to work with pigs. Now pigs are dirty animals. Even today's standards, we would consider pigs to be dirty animals. But pigs in Jewish culture were considered the lowest of the low. Especially the fatter the pig, the more their belly would drag on the ground. We know this because we've seen pigs. And so pigs were considered disgusting. This is why the Jewish culture doesn't eat bacon or pork. It's because pigs, even to clean themselves, roll around in mud. And so to eat an animal that was so unclean would then curse them and make them unclean. And yet this boy who was so hungry said even the food that the pigs were eating. And remember, the body of the Jewish culture during the time was the most of holy places. And so for him to think that this pig food was good, you can tell the state of where, of where this boy was at. Chapter, or verse 17 here. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both you and heaven. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me as a hired servant. And so this boy knows that his father is kind. So kind even to the servants of the house that they have full bellies every night. They have a place to rest every night. They don't have to worry about food. They don't have to worry about shelter. They don't have to worry about clothing because his father provided even for them. And yet here he is as his son, not even worthy of those things anymore. Because he too had those things and said, I don't want them anymore. I can live life on my own. I can do this on my own. Now, no matter how old this boy is, we can assume somewhere between 16 and early 20s, we can assume that he was close to, quote-unquote, manhood and ready to go off into the world on his own. I can tell you for certain that I was once that way, where I was in that 16 to early 20s and thought I could do whatever I wanted, that I was ready for the world. No one's ever really ready for the world until they're stuck in the world. You can take that in many different ways, and I'll let you this morning. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, 
filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. I love this part here. I absolutely love this part here. Because while his son was still a long way off, you can imagine his son, filthy, disheveled, clothes probably torn, probably the same clothes he left with, walking with his head down. Because I don't know many people who are you know, in this state who are proud enough to hold their head up. And so he's probably not looking forward. His feet are probably just carrying him all the way down that path like he did thousands of times before. And yet, his father sees him. Which means his father was looking for him. So we don't know how long this boy was gone, but we can assume that his father every day would wait for him. His father every day would stand there looking off into the distance, hoping that maybe this was the day his son came back. But what if his son never came back? Would he continue waiting every day still? We'll get into that a little bit later. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. He didn't wait for his son to go back in and to wash up and to change his clothes and to wash his hair and to not smell like a pig pen. He didn't wait for him to look like a proper young gentleman before he embraced him. He didn't just hug him, but he kissed his son. Now imagine the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law faces. Then we just talked about all this purity and all had this cleanliness and everything else, but this man didn't care. Because of his love for his son. Because he cared for his son. But he kissed his son. As filthy, as dirty, as disgusting as his son was. I think that was a little blast to the the Pharisees and scribes' faces at the time. And the boy said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get him a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Now, if we look at this, the boy wasn't looking to become his son again. He was just looking to maybe have a place to sleep, a place to eat. He realized... He not only sinned against the father by wishing the father was dead so he could have what was coming to him, but he sinned against heaven. He sinned against God. He realized the things that he had been doing weren't the things that God wanted him to be doing. But his father didn't care. And he reestablished his son as his son. Brought him the finest robe. It doesn't say the son's finest robe. It doesn't say the father's finest robe. It says the finest robe in the entire estate. Now let's look back into Jewish culture here. What are we talking about? If we look at the finest robe, if we were to take our hard-earned money and go down to the store, we could probably find a shirt within about five minutes or so. But if we wanted a finest robe back in this culture, in this time period, it would take at least a couple months to make this clothing. To shear the sheep, to weave the cotton, or the sheep fur, not the cotton, because it wasn't from a cotton field. But you see, to spin this wool into clothing, and then to dye the clothing, that would have been the finest robe. 
And it would have taken multiple people, multiple moments of time. Get a ring and put it on his finger. This would have been the ring that was owned by the father, signifying the family itself. If you remember back to movies about medieval culture, whenever they, the king or whenever the priest would, would write a letter and then they'd put their stamp on it and they'd put the ring into the wax to seal the letter. That's kind of the same thing we're talking about here, is this ring represented the family. And so this boy wasn't just part of the household, wasn't just a servant in the household. He was fully 100% in the family. I love how, this, how verse 23 ends. Kill the fattened calf. And so the party began. So the party began. I can't imagine this son who's been so hungry for so long, and then all of a sudden, this dad throws the biggest party. In fact, we'll get into it later, but this party, the dancing, can be heard from outside the house. Now, there's some days when I come into the house and I hear, I hear the girls listening to, the, to music on the, the radio, and I can hear their foot beats from outside the house because of their dancing or I guess quote unquote dancing. Now let's put this back into context of today. What does this mean to us today? We talked about what it meant to the scribes and the sinners who were there, but what does it mean to us? Why is the story of the prodigal son so common and so overtold that we almost lose the meaning behind it. It means, as Heath said earlier, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we've been through, no matter where we're at, or where it seems like we're going, we're never too far gone. That God is always right there. That God is waiting for us to come back to him. Imagine that, the creator of all things. Chris and I moved down here from, from Canton a couple years ago. Actually, almost eight, no, almost ten years ago now that we've been down here. If you know anything about Canton, Canton is a little bit different than this part of the country or this part of Ohio. But yet we're still amazed every time we're driving back from Canton or driving around town and we look and see one of the sunsets. Or we're driving around in the fall that's coming up here soon and we see the leaves changing colors. It's just amazing to see that. When I went to college, I went to college in West Virginia. And I love to go hiking. I love to sleep out on the rocks in the river. It's like, that's God's creation. There's something about waking up next to hearing water rushing over a rock next to you. And yet, God loves that creation. But it wasn't until after he created man that it was very good. That we are God's chosen creation. And he is waiting for us. We can all think back to a time where we rebelled against God. Where we went against God. And I mentioned college and that was my moment of rebelling against God. I mentioned being here for this is my third Labor Day service. I've only been in ministry for four and a half years now. Before that I did other various jobs because of the situations that I ended up in. Because this wasn't my first Stop. This wasn't my first thinking this is what my career was going to be. I never in my wildest dreams thought I would be in front of people preaching. I thought I was going to be a teacher. I thought I was going to be a history teacher. I thought I was going to be a baseball coach. When you accept God's calling in your life and when you ask God to search your heart, to break you, and then to send you, 
he'll send you on a crazy ride. But I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Honestly, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And so we've all turned from God. We've all rebelled against God. We've all thought that we could do life better on our own. In fact, even if you haven't, even when life is good, you think maybe life is good because of the things you've done or because of the work you've done or because of the things you have or because of the position of life that you're in. Maybe your life is good because of you. That might be the furthest thing from the truth. I've talked about this at, at our church a couple of times that we praise God when things are good, right? It's easy to say, thank you, God, for the things I have. What about thanking God for the things you don't have? Because I think oftentimes we miss that opportunity more than thanking God for the things we have. Because we can become very complacent very easily with the things that we do have. And so sometimes God may be saying no, so you learn how to do without. And so as we look at this, we can all relate in some way or another to this. However, we're going to get into a second portion of this. Remember, this man had two sons. Not just one son, he had two sons. And we often forget about the second son. And notice how I mentioned at the beginning of this, it said, my translation here says, the lost son. Before I get into this, I want to ask you, which one was the lost son? Was the lost son the one who left, or was the lost son the one who stayed? I'll give you the answer. It was both. It was both. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And all that time, you never even gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when the son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Now let's look at this, this son. He's not excited his brother came back. He, he has no reason to be excited his brother came back. Now this young man says he slaved for his father. He worked hard for his father. He was that quote-unquote perfect child that oftentimes the oldest child puts on themselves. Your brother is back. And what's he say to the father here? All these years I've slaved for you. You never once did a single thing for me. You never gave me a goat to feast with my friends. Verse 30. Yet when the son of yours comes back. He doesn't say when my brother comes back. He doesn't say anything about any relationship. But he looks at the father and says when the son of yours comes back. He completely removes any relationship from the picture. Removes himself from his father. Removes himself from the son. This is the son that stayed. This is the son that followed all the rules. This is the son that did what he was supposed to do. Except he missed one thing. He stayed, but did he have a relationship with the father? 
How does that relate to us today? We're here in this church. Some of us have been going to church since we were in diapers. Some of us have been going to church since we were in our mother's womb. Some of us could tap out the hymns inside of our mother. But does it mean anything unless we have a relationship with the Father? This is what it comes down to. It doesn't matter if we're from the Church of Christ. It doesn't matter if we're from MCA. It doesn't matter if we're from Presbyterian Church. It doesn't matter if we're from the Baptist Church. It doesn't matter if we're from the Methodist Church, the Lutheran Church, the, any church you can think of because there's over 200 different denominations of churches within the United States alone. It doesn't matter unless you have a relationship with the Father as it was intended. As Jesus said it was supposed to be. If there's no relationship, there's no reason for being here. Let me say that again so it sinks in a little bit. If there's no relationship with the Father, if there's no understanding of who Jesus is, if there's no understanding of what Jesus has done, then there's no reason for being here. But you are here. So thank you for that. Verse 31 here, he says, His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he has found. Or now he was found. It's hard in this area... And I've had conversations with people from the Presbyterian Church, and I've talked to John a, a little bit here and there. But it's hard for churches to grow in this area. For the most part, we've, we've talked about this, that people have heard the gospel since they were in diapers. And because of that, they've grown comfortable with the gospel. They've grown comfortable with the church. Or in some ways, maybe the church has hurt them. Maybe you're one of those people that has been hurt by the church. And for that, I apologize. If no one else has before, I apologize for that. But if we want to see the church grow, if we want unity within our communities, we have to take a look at the relationship between the oldest son and the newest or the youngest son. What happens here? In some other scriptures, Jesus says that there is more rejoicing in heaven for one sinner who comes to God, who comes to know God, than a thousand others who already do. That should sound kind of familiar to this story here. We as Christians in this room have the tendency that when someone wants to come to know Christ, our first reaction is, do you really? I know what you've done. I know who you are. Do you really want to come to Christ? Or are you just looking for a way out of the situation? We become skeptical. Other scriptures also say rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so if this person is struggling, we need to come beside them and struggle with them. Join them in their struggle. Not to come up and tell them, oh, you need to fix this, this, and this, and then you'll be good. Because that gets us into what I call checklist Christianity. 
Checklist Christianity is what happened in the Old Testament. Checklist Christianity is what created 613 laws of the Old Testament that the Israelites or the chosen people could not follow. Don't do that to people now. Come beside people. Love people where they're at. And show them that the only way to change is to have that relationship. If we want to grow the church, we have to relay the information of what a relationship with God looks like. It's not about quarreling over doctrine, squabbling over differing theologies. It's about showing that no matter what, at the end of the day, we all believe and we follow Jesus. He was lost, but now he is found. Who was the father talking to? Was he talking to the older boy? Or was he talking to the younger son who had just come home? And where are we at this morning? Are we in that place of being lost? Are we going through struggles where we're questioning God? Because if you praise God in the good times, you also have to praise God in the bad times. If you thank God for the good times, you also have to thank God for the bad times. If you want to blame God for the bad times, then blame God for the good times too. But where are you at this morning? Are you that younger son struggling with who God is? Or are you the older son struggling with your righteousness, your salvation, your quote-unquote perfection as a Christian? And this brings us to our time of communion this morning. Because as we've been studying the, the history of the church, the text I'm kind of going through and helping myself out with that, because church history is kind of a little bit confusing at times. It's hard at times to understand what is exactly going on. And I've always heard that the Old Testament points to Jesus. The entirety of the Old Testament points to Jesus. I said this at my very first communion service on this Labor Day, that Jesus wasn't plan B, he wasn't plan C, Jesus was plan A from the very beginning. That Jesus was always the plan. That from Genesis to Revelation, everything points to Jesus. The Old Testament points to Jesus, the Gospels bring us Jesus, and then the epistles then tell us how to live a life with Jesus. However, once I started studying the, the church history, I started reading the Old Testament a little bit differently. The Old Testament not only points to Jesus, but it tells us of our need for Jesus. Because something happened in Genesis. Something happened in the Garden of Eden. Something still happens today. Is our sin separates us from Jesus. Sin separated Adam and Eve from God. They had God walking and talking right beside them. And yet they chose what they wanted. I was at a church camp over the summer and one of the 12-year-olds, we were asking him a question. He goes, you know what? I've been thinking about this. Humanity since the beginning of time hasn't changed. And he was right. Humanity is selfish. Humanity wants what humanity wants. Human nature wants what human nature wants because it's selfish. We're selfish. But go ahead and be selfish about those donuts a little later. 
You see, the, the Old Testament shows us how selfish humanity is. Shows us how humanity tries to save itself. Shows us how 613 laws tried to bring us back into righteousness. Tried to bring us back to relationship with God. And yet over and over again it failed. Over and over again the Israelites failed. Over and over again we fail. But it's the sacrifice that this cup represents. It's the body that the bread represents. It's the blood that is spilt that this cup represents. That reminds us of Jesus. Reminds us of the only way we can gain salvation. The only way we can get back to God. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is right standing with God. It takes us from the pig trough, rolling around in the mud with the pigs of our everyday lives. And it is this that we take to remember that it's okay to not be okay. That in the end of things, we'll be all right because of the body broken and the blood shed. So I'll pray, and then after I pray, we'll go ahead and take part. There's a small film to take the bread out, and then hopefully you don't spill the juice over yourself. But I'll pray, and that'll give us a few moments, and then I'll pray again, and we'll close out this morning. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. And I thank you above all things that I am yours. The creator of all things chose to create me. Lord, as I stand here in my imperfection, I thank you for your son who is perfection. I thank you for the story of the prodigal son. That we see ourselves not only as lost, but we see ourselves as needing you to bring us back. Whether we've never left, whether we're returning, Lord, we need you. Thank you for this bread and this juice as a reminder of that. Lord, thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Never forget that this is what binds us to God. This is what reminds us that we choose Jesus each and every day. And so sometimes as we, the Fredericksburg Church of Christ, we take this every Sunday. And so taking it that regularly, sometimes we can, we can lose our focus on that. But this morning, let this be a reminder that because Jesus chooses us, we get to choose Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that we can come together as the church. Lord, I thank you for that because it is an amazing thing. Lord, I pray that as we leave here this morning, we leave here focused on you, focused on our relationship with you, and focused on how we can use that relationship to bring you glory. Lord, as we leave here this morning, as we leave here into our mission fields, our places of work, our places of school, our places of wherever we have influence, Lord, I pray that we do it for you. Lord, be with us. Give us strength. Give us grace. And above all things, give us the humility to know that it is through you 
we do all things. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You are dismissed.